If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Picking up in verse 20, we'll read down to verse 27 together this morning for our text. Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. If you don't have a copy of the Bible in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there as we read together. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is God's Word. Oh boy. I want to begin this morning uh, with the words of the notable Bible teacher, Alistair Begg, as he comments on this particular passage. And he says this, and I concur. In what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening, and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I am about to now unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. Right? And so that's where we're headed this morning in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. I know some of us have probably heard this text taught if you've been in church circles for a number of years in ways that serve kind of as a justification for all the prepping you've been doing. Okay? So all the bunkers that you've built and the canned goods and ammunition and whiskey you have stockpiled somewhere waiting for the zombies to show up. Okay? Right? So the way that you've read this text and heard it taught probably is like, man, yeah, right on. I can keep digging those holes. Right? Trenches and bunkers. However, I, I, I just want to say this morning at the very outset, I, I have come at least to humbly hold, and I'll say this at the outset, right? That there are many godly, godly people who have various perspectives on this particular text who love Jesus, they love the church, they love His Word, they have served the Lord well and faithfully year after year after year all over the course of their lives, but we may not, disagree, we may not agree. 
Right? And so when I say I've come to humbly hold, I really do mean that humbly. And it may come to change over the course of my life and tenure and study as the Lord reveals more to me. But I've come to humbly hold that everything that we read in this passage that was prophesied to Daniel by the Lord, given through this vision that he has or this, this message that he receives from Gabriel, has a fulfillment in the past. Right, So either in the course of Israel's history, the arrival of Jesus in human history, or just subsequent to the arrival of Jesus in human history in His crucifixion, death, and resurrection. That it's all been fulfilled. Now, I've come to see this with the help of, and I'll go ahead and give him credit, by a guy by the name of Rodney Stewart, who's a Bible commentator, very, very helpful on this particular passage. And so before we get to the application of this, I want to lead you through what I believe he's helped me to see and then try to turn our attention to what that might mean for how we ought to live. Okay? So, let's, I'm going to do a little teaching this morning first, all right, in order to get to the application. So bear with me. Right, so first, let's try to get an understanding of verses 25 to 27 as we kind of begin to pull this text apart a little bit. In verse 25, we'll take them as they lay, verse by verse. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled time. Now, first thing I want you to notice in verse 25 is that the verse refers to an anointed prince, an anointed ruler who would come. That word anointed one or anointed is the Hebrew word for the Messiah. That word shows up several places throughout the Old Testament, but most notably here in Daniel chapter 9 and in Psalm chapter 2 verse 2, speaking of the Lord's anointed, the Lord's ruler, the Lord's king. Right? And so the, it's, it's equivalent to our English word Messiah. And the Messiah is the one that the Jewish people were looking for for some 400 years post-Malachi as they waited for the coming of God's kingdom. And the reason they were waiting for the Messiah was because the Messiah was the only one, the only figure predicted in the Old Testament that had some sort of time stamp associated with His arrival right here in Daniel chapter 9. Now, He's prophesied as a coming anointed one, a prince. The fact that He's called a prince links this prophecy in Daniel 9 to the book of Micah chapter 5, verse 2 that we read every Christmas time. But O you, Bethlehem, right? Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me one who is able, who is a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. In other words, he has doesn't have a beginning. He's always been from ancient of days, and yet he's coming to be my ruler, my anointed one that I would set over my people Israel. That's the anointed one, the Messiah referred to in verse 25, who is none other than Jesus Christ in His first advent. Second, I want you to notice the period of time from the issuing of the decree to the coming of this anointed prince. Now, many Bible scholars, even some that I would disagree with, right? they understand the weeks here to be symbolic language. Referring to weeks of years, or in other words, seven days in a week, right? And so the weeks are like seven years. So weeks of years. You with me? You tracking? Right? No? 
I told you it would confuse some, okay? Many, right? But there's seven, seven, uh, seven days in a week, and so this, this, langu- this language of weeks would be weeks of years or seven-year periods. Now, the word or the decree to rebuild Jerusalem would be given by Artaxerxes, and you can read about that in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 to 26. And the year was 457 B.C., now, what Daniel 9.25 is saying then, as crazy as this may seem, right, is that from the date of the issuing of the decree in 457 B.C. by Artaxerxes until the Anointed One, or the Messiah, comes, there will be a total period of time of seven sevens, right, plus 62 sevens, so this would be 69 weeks, right, or 69 weeks of years, or 69 times seven, which ultimately results in... a I'm not doing the math on the spot because I'm terrible, but I did it earlier, right? It would be 483 years. This would mean that Gabriel pinpointed the Messiah being on the earth somewhere around A.D. 26. Hmm. Third, notice that it would be during this time that Jerusalem would be rebuilt, but in troubled time, the text says, or with great difficulty. Now, at some point in your own personal study, I want to encourage you to go back and read Nehemiah chapters 4, 5, and 6. Right? Because we see there just how much opposition, how much resistance there was to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the walls around the city. In fact, we're told in Nehemiah chapter 4 that the builders labored with a trowel in one hand and a sword strapped to their side so that whenever the enemy came, they could put down the trowel, pull out the sword, and fight against those who opposed the rebuilding. So there's all kinds of rebuilding going on, but in very distressing and troubled times. Verse 25. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, first of all, there will be the death of the anointed one, the cutting off of the anointed one. Gabriel says sometime after the 69th week, not in the 69th week, right? Not in the 483rd year, but sometime after that 483rd year, the anointed one will be cut off or he shall be killed. It's prophesied about Jesus 400 some odd years, almost 500 years before he is crucified. Now Jesus' disciples must have missed this or they didn't want to... They didn't want to deal with the reality of this prophecy because if you remember in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, who does everybody say that I am? Some say, well, you're, you're one of the prophets or you're Elijah, right? Or, and, and then he looks at, at his disciples and say, well, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? You are the Christ, which is literally translated, you are the anointed one. Where did you get that language from? Psalm 2, Daniel chapter 9. And immediately then on the heels of that, Jesus begins to teach them that He must suffer many things and die at the hands of the religious and political leaders of His day. He'd be killed and raised again on the third day. And then do you remember what happens next? Peter says, Jesus, come see, bud. Right? He tries to pull Jesus aside and rebuke Him. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, the devil is a liar. Peter, and you're acting just like him right now because you're trying to get me to do the very same thing he tried to get me to do in the wilderness, which was to clothe myself in glory without the cross. 
after the 69th week, the anointed one would be cut off and have nothing. The destruction of Jerusalem, right? And the people, right? The city and the sanctuary shall be destroyed in verse 26. In AD 70, the Roman Emperor Titus would lead an expedition to overthrow the city of Jerusalem. And he is, I believe, the ruler described here in verse 26. And so when you read, the end shall come like a flood, I don't think he's referring to the end of the world at some cataclysmic future point from where we are today. I rather believe he's describing how Jerusalem was finally destroyed by the Roman soldiers, that the soldiers engulfed the city like, a, like floodwaters. Right, so when you read that to the end there shall be war, it's describing the fact that though Jerusalem was invaded in A.D. 70 by Titus, right, they continued to fight and to resist until the very end in which they were squashed in A.D. 132. Listen to what Jewish historian Josephus said about this occasion. He said the Jews rebelled against the Romans in A.D. 66. He said war continued for the next four years. The Jews won a partial victory in AD 70, putting the Roman general Gallus to flight. He had come from Syria to secure the city, but that small victory would cost the Jews dearly in the long run. Vespasian became a campaign, or began a campaign against Israel, but he was recalled to Rome. Consequently, his son Titus continued the task. He entered Jerusalem at its most crowded time, Passover. Reports of up to 600,000 Jewish people slaughtered were spread abroad. And the wars continued to the end for the remaining Jews continued the resistance for some 60 years. The last stand of the Jews was at a large mountain by the Dead Sea known as Masada. And finally in A.D. 132, the Romans swept through like a flood, plowed the temple of the Lord under, and built an altar to Jupiter on that site. Vespasian set up an abomination that caused desolation in that holy place. And so when Gabriel says to Daniel, desolations are decreed, I don't think he's speaking of the Antichrist who is coming in the future at the end of the world. He's speaking of what takes place in Jerusalem by the overthrowing and conquering of the city, the desecrations of the temple that are established by the Roman emperor in that period of time from 70 to 132 A.D. In fact, if you compare Daniel 9, Compare Daniel 9 to Matthew 24 and Luke 21. When Jesus is giving a discourse on the Mount of Olives, right, it's widely recognized that much of that discourse is a reference to Jesus predicting the fall of Jerusalem. And in fact, He references in Matthew 24, He says, what I'm about to tell you will be the fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. Right? And He even says, listen, he says, he says, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing in those days who have to flee, right? Now, some who understand what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 and what Daniel's talking about in Daniel 9 as the coming of the end of the world, they're like, don't have babies, right? Because you're going to be at a disadvantage when the end of the world comes, so stop having kids, man. Right? It's going to be rough on you, but I believe what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and what Daniel's prophesying is the destruction of Jerusalem. Can you imagine the Roman army coming in as a mother's trying to nurse their child? How difficult it would be to flee to the hillside. Verse 27. 
And he shall make a strong covenant with, one, with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree, decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What is this strong covenant that he makes? Now, there, there, there are some who would teach that this is the, if this is the Antichrist and he comes and he makes a covenant with the Jewish people for like three and a half years uh, and then he's like, I was just playing, takes it back and begins to persecute and destroy them with God's people at the end of the age. Right? But what are we to understand this covenant is and who is it that is making it? Those are the two central pieces to understanding, I believe, what's going on in this text. Now listen, verse 27 begins with the word, the pronoun he. Okay? And if you took an English class in high school, then you recognize that every pronoun has to have an antecedent. Okay? An antecedent. Something it refers to. Right? So he or she must refer to a him or a her. Right? A proper name somewhere along the way, or a person, or a thing, or a place. Okay? So it begins in verse 27 with the word he, and it needs an antecedent. What does it point back to? Now, there are only two possibilities in the text grammatically. The first one, first possibility grammatically in the text, would be the prince or the ruler of verse 26. Okay? He would come in, overthrow the city, and destroy the city, and overrun the sanctuary. That's the first possibility. But if that's the Roman general Titus in the A.D. 70, there's no historical record of him making a covenant with the people of God, with the Jewish people, right, and trying to appease them or treat them well. The other possibility for the antecedent is back in verse 25, which is the anointed one who would come, who would eventually be cut off. And that he would make that covenant with many he says. Now, there are two Hebrew words used to speak of establishing a covenant, and they roughly translate into our English words cut and confirm. Okay? To cut a covenant with someone it was typical language that you would use in the Old Testament times if you were to enter into a new agreement, you were to make new promises, you were to establish a new covenant with someone, you would cut that covenant. Okay? you also could confirm a covenant that had already been previously established. Okay? And so if you were, were going to ratify a covenant that was already in existence, you would confirm it. Now guess which one of those two words is underneath the Hebrew word in our text, in our English text, to make a covenant. It's not the word cut to establish some new covenant with God's people, but rather it's the word to confirm or to ratify an already existing and established covenant. Who would do that? Titus or Jesus? So He comes to establish or to ratify or to confirm this covenant already in existence that God had made with His people this is not some new covenant the Antichrist is entering with God's people for three and a half years, rather than the culmination of God's promises throughout history, throughout time, brought to fulfillment in the Anointed One, the Messiah. He says, for half a week He shall put an end to sacrifice and offerings. What does that mean? Listen, if we understand the weeks as periods of seven years, then half a week would be what? Three and a half years. Roughly the amount of time of Jesus' public ministry at the end of which He is what? Come on church, you know this. He's crucified. He's crucified. 
as what? The final offering. The final sacrifice. To do away with all the offerings and sacrifices that they shall be no more. In fact, whenever He is crucified, we're told in the Scriptures and the Gospel accounts that the curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies is torn in two, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom to communicate God has done this. In other words, God's people no longer need protection from God's presence because God has dealt with their sin and their defilement through the cross and through the person of Jesus. This anointed One who would be cut off. When Jesus is crucified, right? there's no longer a need to mediate the relationship between God and His people through offerings and sacrifices that were brought daily or annually. But since the Jewish people did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, God underscored the fact that He was. And one of the ways that He did that was through the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple by the Romans until He would bring the decreed end to the desolator as He would bring Rome even to its knees. Now, let's go back to verse 24. Right, Still doing a little teaching here. Right, go back to verse 24 and see if all of these purposes that are outlined in verse 24 fit with that time frame. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy Place. Now, there are several purposes, six to be in fact. I'm going to group them, some of them together here because they're speaking of similar things. He's, first of all, to the, this, this 70-week period, okay, this, this time frame that stretched out throughout, throughout from the time that the, the decree of the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the time of the Messiah, right, is to finish transgression to put an end to sin. To finish transgression to put an end to sin. If you go forward into the, into, the, into the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 to 28, we're told that Jesus, in His first advent, in His first arrival, He says He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. He says there's the distinction between what Jesus accomplished in His first advent and what He's coming for in His second. He says in His first advent, He put sin away. He dealt with sin definitively by the sacrifice of Himself upon the cross. Right, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to put it away. So in His second coming, whenever He returns, He's not coming to deal with sin. Why? Because sin's already been dealt with. But rather, He's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for His arrival. He's coming to save His people. In His second coming, He's come once to deal with sin fully, finally, forever. And in His second arrival, He's coming to save us, church. Isn't that good news? So I don't believe that we're waiting for a period further down the line for 
transgressions to be dealt with, for sin to be brought to an end. Right? That He's put it away once and for all by one final sacrifice. Second group of purposes here. To atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we're told that Jesus had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation in some of our English translations is translated atoning sacrifice. Same concept. Taking God's wrath upon Himself and turning God's wrath from us. So God's just anger and holy anger against sin that would fall on Jesus to make atonement in the same way that the knife fell upon the lamb or slit its throat and its blood covered the mercy seat. To turn aside God's wrath, Jesus would be that lamb, the ultimate and final lamb who would atone for our iniquities. And, he also says, to bring in everlasting righteousness. If you look at Isaiah chapter 51, beginning of verse 5 and then verses 6 to 8, I want to read them to you this morning. And I want you to hear what the prophet Isaiah says. He says, my righteousness, God speaking through Isaiah says, my righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. Then in verse 6, he says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and those they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations." Listen to the language. My righteousness, it comes close in verse 5. It draws near. It's coming to my people. And then he goes on in verses 6 to 8 to say, it's going to be a righteousness that's everlasting. It's a righteousness that will not be dismayed. It's a righteousness that will be eternal. It will last forever throughout all generations. And church, in His first advent, Jesus perfectly fulfills every jot and tittle of the law, right? Every cross of a T, every dot of an I, in perfect obedience to the Word and will of God. Perfect obedience. He lives in our place. Because we could not fulfill God's law. And then you know what happens? The better He lives, the more they hate Him. And they string Him up on a cross to do what? As a perfect sacrifice? Spotless Lamb to atone for sin. His everlasting righteousness. Two more. To seal both prophet and vision. Or vision and prophet. Now there's two ways the word seal can be used, church. It can be used to communicate the idea of like closing something up tight. You know, we open those jars of pickles, right? That's why I open anyway. Jars of pickles and you see that little button in the middle go, right? Because it's been sealed airtight at the factory, right? So there's one way the word seal can be used is to seal something up tight. Another way the word seal can be used is like 
is by the idea of authenticating something, like the seal of a notary public, right? Whenever they stamp a legal document. And they say, yes, this is true. Yes, this is valid. Yes, this has happened. Yes, this transaction has been made. Right? In Daniel chapter 6, we see the word seal used very much that way. Whenever Daniel's thrown into the den of lions, the large stones rolled over it, and the king takes a signet ring and does what? Right, seals it. Now, he's not taking wire, okay, and insulation and pushing it around the edge, right? He's not sealing it up and closing it up tight. He's authenticating it, saying, this is the decree that's gone out. I would authenticate it so that Daniel's situation, it cannot be changed. That's exactly what the text says in Daniel chapter 6. Okay? Now, the word seal here, I believe, is used in that manner of authenticating the visions and the prophets. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke unto us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. In other words, when God definitively speaks through His Son, He has authenticated everything that the prophets said and all the visions that the prophets saw. Right? Everything that they saw and everything that they said, boom, he's stamping it with his seal and authenticating the revelation that had come prior. Finally, to anoint a most holy place. Now, there's probably a little, a little, well, in some of your translations, there may be a little footnote there, right? That says, or person, okay? Or one, okay? Because in the Old Testament, you often didn't have anointed places. You had holy places that was set apart for God, but it didn't speak of them as being anointed places. But you had anointed people, right? You had anointed people. You had like the judges in the Old Testament, or you had the prophets, or you had the priests, or you had the kings. These were people upon whom God's anointing rested, and he says in this, this period of 70 weeks, right, there's going to be the, the, the anointing of the most holy. And I believe the proper translation there would be person. Or you could say people. And then you have two alternatives here, church. One, you could say that this is a reference potentially to Jesus' baptism when the Holy Spirit does what? It descends on Him like a dove to anoint Him for His earthly ministry. Or second of all, it could refer to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit does what? Descends on the people of God, the church of God, like tongues of fire. Okay? So all of these purposes that we see in verse 24 for this 70 weeks, right? can ultimately be fulfilled in the first advent of Jesus, not necessarily having to wait for a second. In fact, one commentator, Dr. Edward Young, said it this way. He said, when our Lord ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit descended, there not, remained not one of these items that was not accomplished. So I don't think Daniel is trying to kick it forward and say, look for this particular stuff in Daniel chapter 9 to come in the future, but that it's already been fulfilled in the past. It's been fulfilled in the first advent of Jesus. That is not to say Jesus will not have a second advent. That He will not come again in the future, and that the Bible doesn't speak about those things, because it does. I just don't think that it's right here in Daniel chapter 9. Okay? We can disagree on that. Right? And we can have an open-handed approach to that and still be in the same church. 
Right? That's one of the things we say in our members' classes. Like we, eschatology is not something that we have to divide over. Right? Our understanding of the end times. But we can worship Jesus, serve Jesus, love Jesus, and love each other and serve each other without agreement on Daniel chapter 9. About what all that means. Okay? But as I said before, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening. Now, if this is true, then what does it mean for you and I in the way that we go about our lives today? I'll give you two things and I'll be out of your way. First of all, if this is true, then we must then then, then we're able to rest in God's faithfulness. Rest in God's faithfulness. You know what, church? God, some of you have experienced with shady mechanics, haven't you? Right now, I, I'm privileged to know a few upstanding and honest ones. Okay, got a few of them here in our church. But some of us had experience with shady mechanics. You know what shady mechanics will do? Okay. Sometimes they're not licensed, sometimes they're not certified, sometimes they have no idea what they're doing, but they'll take your money and tell you they can do something that they haven't done ever before. Okay? That's what a shady mechanic does. He says, oh yeah, you got these things going on around your car, bring it into me, I'll take care of it, listen, I'll get you fixed up, and I'll get you out the door, and you're going to have a reliable vehicle. That's what a shady mechanic does. And oftentimes they mark up, right, what the, the work that they're doing and charge you an exorbitant amount of money for something they cannot do. God is not a shady mechanic. What He promises to do, He actually does. He's faithful in fulfilling His promises. So when God said He was going to send an anointed ruler who would be cut off to bring an end to offerings and sacrifices once and for all, to put away and atone for sin, to fulfill all righteousness in a manner that would last forever and ever and ever, to confirm everything He has ever said or shown through the prophets and anoint a people for Himself. Guess what, church? He did it. He did it. He was faithful to fulfill His promise. And if you and I really, if, we, if this really got a hold of our hearts, church, then listen, in these tumultuous days, I want you to know, it's not that we would be immune to what we see around us. Our hearts would still be broken over sin. Our hearts ought to still be broken over suffering. Our hearts ought to still be broken over injustice. Our hearts ought to still be broken over abuse and all kinds and manners of manifestations of the broken human condition. But if, we, if the faithfulness of God, that He fulfills what He promises, if it really got a hold of us, that even in the midst of all of this, you know what we would be as Christians? We would be the most secure people on the planet. The most secure people on the planet. Because we know that God is working through all things to bring about His purposes and His ends. And He has shown us in the past that He has done it. So why would we doubt in the present that He will do it? So no matter how tumultuous things are in your life, you can rest in God's faithfulness. And if you're not going to rest in God's faithfulness, and the second thing, I told you I'd give you two things and be out of your way. The second thing is this. So we trust in God's timing. 
We learn to trust in God's timing. I find it fascinating that when God says to Daniel that it's not going to be 70 years, but a period of 77s, right? He's stretching Daniel's understanding of how God works in the lives of His covenant people. Right? Daniel, Daniel 9 shows us that God's timetable for work in our lives and the life of, of His people in, in the world is much larger and often longer than we can conceive of. Right? Because we pray and we expect an answer to come when? Now. Now. But in Daniel chapter 9, I find it interesting that whenever Gabriel shows up, Gabriel tells Daniel, he says, Daniel, you know what? The moment your plea went out, an answer was dispatched. And I'm here now to help you understand. That's amazing. The moment your prayer was lifted to heaven, an answer was given. And I'm here to help you understand that answer. But Daniel, that answer, it may not be what you want. It may not come in the time that you would desire. Because essentially the answer is this. God says, I'm going to do my work in my time and it's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think like that. <laughs> I don't, right? Listen, I, I've, got, I've got a particular internet provider that brings service into my neighborhood uh, that delivers usually very, very reliable connection and high rates of speed. Okay, and so there can be several different devices pulling off of our Wi-Fi router and I can still click on something on my phone and go and register for an event with Redeemer. Right. Or I can go and connect with people on Facebook. Right. You can click and like almost instantaneously. Boom. It's right there in front of your face. It's speed. Right. That's what we want in Wi-Fi service. We want in high high speed broadband Internet. But listen, I am not so young that I cannot remember the days of dial-up. Okay? Some of you are like, what was dial-up? Dial-up was the first internet. Okay? Alright, where you plugged it into your phone line. And as you tried to log on, it was like... Right? You tried to log on to check your email. You got all these, sounds like cats dying in the background or something, being tortured. Right? And so you had dial-up, and it took forever to establish a connection, it seemed like. You might wait for four or five minutes just to get a connection to the server. And then as you went and checked email, right, you were like, okay, when's the next one going to load? When, how, how fat? Like you, you, had no idea, like you had no idea when, how, when, when it was going to get there. Right? Because it was dial-up. It wasn't broadband. We've had so much progress over the course of my lifetime that now... Right? When you have to wait three seconds for a web page to load on your smartphone, you're like, come on! Right? Am I, the, I must be the only one that feels that way. But listen, that's how we feel. Because we have zero capacity to wait. We live in an instantaneous culture. We're accustomed to getting what we want when we want it. So if we can't eat it, right? We, if we can't eat it immediately, we put it in a microwave and we nuke it. If we can't 
<laughs> if you can't buy it, you put it on a credit card. If you can't wait to lose it with diet and exercise, you get a surgery or two. Right? Shrink the stomach and nip and tuck elsewhere and we're good to go. Right? Because we don't want to wait. Right? We can get what we want when we want it. And so often our mindset, that mindset gets smuggled into how we relate to God and His work in our lives. As a result, we have no use at all in our lives for what I would believe the Bible would call crockpot Christianity, right? Something that takes time to simmer, time to bake into our lives, progressively forming us to the image of Jesus. And so as a result, because we have no patience for anything and God's timing in our lives, because He doesn't come and say, yes, you're going to go back tomorrow and everything's going to be great. Rather, He says, no, there's 77s here. You've got a period of time that you're going to wait. There's going to be trouble and distress as you rebuild the city. And there's going to be all kinds of things that come. It's going to be overthrown again, more destruction. This is what He says. And it's going to take time for the unfolding of my plan. And you and I are like, Three seconds. Refresh, 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 refresh. We have no time right, to put something on the smoker outside and wait 14 hours, 16 hours, take a brisket and put it in the microwave. You know what happens when you do that? It's like a hockey puck. Okay? But we don't, we, we, we don't, we don't trust in God's timing. As a result... We're done with that long, slow, deep work of sanctification. We're done with it in our lives. We wish that tomorrow we could wake up and all, all of our struggle with sin would be gone. But not only are we not patient with ourselves, more than anything, we're not patient with the other people in our lives. Because we believe they ought to be more sanctified than they are, particularly when it's around an area of sin that you have gained victory over by the grace of God and they have not yet. And you think, why can't they just get victory over that like I did? See, if we really trusted in God's timing that His work is so much larger and oftentimes so much longer in our lives than what we can conceive of, you know what it would give us? We would make not only even the most secure people on the face of the earth, but the most patient. There would be a deepening sense of patience with yourself, a deepening sense of patience with your spouse. I start preaching there, okay? A deepening sense of patience with your children. That's another sermon. A deepening sense of patience with other church members. There would be this growing fruit of patience in our life if we trusted in God's timing. Listen, church. Regardless of how you interpret Daniel chapter 9, my hope would be that this morning, that what you see there, that what you see there, would cause your heart to erupt in a love for a God who is faithful to keep His Word so that you might rest in His faithfulness of knowing that He is in control and you are secure and that you would trust in His timing and that you would deepen in this sense of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life of patience, being able to wait on the Lord, being able to wait on other people, 
showing grace to others in the midst of their failures and showing grace to yourself in the midst of yours and receiving that grace from your brothers and sisters who are being patient with you because they're trusting in God's timing. His work is larger and longer than what we can conceive. Some of you need that word this morning for your children. You need that word this morning for yourself. You need that word this morning for your life group. You need that word this morning for your neighbors. You need that word this morning for your family. So as we close in prayer this morning and the band comes to lead us, as we respond to what God has said, I want to pray to the end that God would help us to rest in how faithful He has been and trust in His timing that He will continue to be. Let's pray together. Father, I know we may have varying viewpoints and disagreements over what we read in the eight verses that I've feebly tried to exposit this morning. But I pray that regardless of where any individual in this room or online may land in their understanding of what's going on in Daniel chapter 9 and how it relates to the first and the second coming of Jesus, Father, I pray that You would help us know that from whatever parts of it that we can see clearly, that You have done and acted in our lives, that God, that we, as we see Your faithfulness unfold on the pages of history, that it would help us to rest in Your faithfulness in the pages of our lives, particularly the unwritten chapters that we've yet to see. And that no matter what comes our way, God, that you would help us to stand securely, even though we're broken by sin in our own lives and those around us, God, that we would be secure. Knowing that even, as Paul says to Timothy, even when we are faithless, you are faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. And your Holy Spirit, which, with which we have been anointed, which has come to fill our lives upon our conversion. Whenever you awakened us to life from death, means that what you have placed within us by the placing of yourself, as your spirit dwells within your people, you would never forsake us because you will not forsake yourself. Help us to rest in that faithfulness. And to know that no matter what tomorrow holds, that not only do you hold tomorrow, but you are working in it to be faithful to your people and promises to carry out your purposes. And because of that truth, would you help us to trust in your timing? To know that you are at a long, doing a long work in our lives and a long work in this world. And so, Father, may You continue to cultivate patience within us to wait on You, to trust You in the midst of our confusion, and to trust that You're not done with us, with our children, 
with our spouses, and with our church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.